Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we'll be examining the concept of the long self. My guest is Eric Wargo, author of Time Loops, about which we've done two previous interviews. His newest book is called Precognitive Dreamwork and the Long Self, Interpreting Messages from Your Future. Eric is based in the Washington, D.C. area, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Eric. It's a pleasure to be with you. I see it's been three years since our previous interview. Yeah, that's incredible, but it's great to be back on your show. Time flies. And of course, since we're going to be talking about the long body today, I guess it would be fair to say that there is a sense in which our entire past and future is already present. And that's, in a way, what we're talking about when we call it the long body. Yeah, or the long self is the term that I use. Yeah, long body. But I was sort of inspired by that term long body, which I've seen in, in, uh, in other traditions. But yeah, it's sort of the same thing, same idea. It's, as I recall, it's a Native American term. I think so, and I'm I'm blanking on the name of the of the group that that uh, that it comes from, the culture that it comes from. But yeah, I've, I've originally seen it there, but I've also seen it in in some uh, Asian uh, religious uh, contexts. So, if we could see ourselves as we truly are, from birth to death, and maybe before birth and after death, and maybe uh, including every part of the geography in which we've traveled, but there's even a larger sense than that, I imagine, uh, being that everything that you've ever held in your thoughts, including really the entire universe. Right. Yeah, I mean it's your whole your whole life and uh, and across time exactly, uh, and you know the way I think of it is as as a worm, <laughs> which sounds, <laughs> which you know doesn't sound very appealing, but I'm not talking about a little you know earthworm. I'm talking about a you know a vast you know uh, uh, entity uh, stringing through time, and and this what we experience in the present moment is just a cross section of that. And actually, what you're saying, funnily enough, reminds me of the movie Dune, where you have these giant worms who produce the spice that uh, enables the space pilots to have precognitive visions. Absolutely. And Frank Herbert was a real, he had a lot of really interesting thoughts about, about precognition. And there's a lot, it's a, you know, it's a theme running through. Uh, all of his novels, and uh, I was delight. You know, I was beyond delighted with uh, Denis Villeneuve's movie. You know, I watched it like five times in the first week that it came out. I was <laughs> I was so over the moon that he did such a good job with it, and he did a great job with the precognition aspect. I was uh, I, I thought it was fantastic what he did with the you know the sort of foreshadowings of later events and the way you know characters that he would meet in his future appeared in a sort of symbolic way in his in his visions uh, I thought that was it was brilliant 
Well, that's what you're exploring in your new book, is the, the way in which each and every individual lives simultaneously in the past and the future and is receiving information, uh, nuanced information uh, from the future just as much as from the past. Yes, absolutely. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, my, you know, basically, you know, if you boiled what I'm arguing down into a nutshell, and I'm not the first to argue this, but uh, is that is that precognition is an aspect of our memory, and that memory goes both directions. And so, you know, we have a pretty good understanding, we think, of how memory works in the forward going direction. You know, we can under, we can grasp how we have memories, we retrain, retain memories of our past experiences. Uh, but it's that's only half of of our memory and uh and the thing is those you know those memories going the opposite direction they they obey almost all the same laws but there's a few you know subtle differences which make it uh uh easy to overlook easy to ignore or easy to misinterpret um and so you know it it requires a shift in mindset uh uh to begin to see how this is operating and that's what i'm trying to facilitate you draw upon the work of J.W. Dunn back in the, the 1920s. He proposed an experiment that anybody could perform for themselves by making a careful diary of their dreams. And you, I think you're recommending uh, that everybody uh, attempt to repeat that experiment because, uh, as you see it, it is a repeatable scientific test anyone can do. Absolutely. Yeah. I, yes, I'm, he is the number one, he is the number one pioneer in the study of, of, of precognition and precognitive dreams specifically. Uh, and yeah, his experiment with time, it was, uh, what I call it in the new book is citizen science. I mean, he was, uh, he was, uh, an early citizen scientist. He was trying to, uh, you know, he, 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 he could, could convince himself of this and he could, you know, make a great argument using examples of his own dreams. But, you know, what he wanted people to do was look, look, check for yourself. I mean, that's actually something from the, from the Buddhist tradition too, that I'm, that I, you know, the Zen tradition that I, is sort of my uh, practice, you know, they all, you know, they always say check for yourself. The point is don't listen to what I'm saying. Don't take it on my authority, you know, have this experience yourself and then see what you think. And that's, uh, so that, yes, I'm trying to carry that forward. And my, my, what I'm trying to get people to do is exactly what, almost exactly what Dunn recommended. Although I add, uh, he had a two-step process and mine is a three-step process and I think you'll get better results. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, basically Dunn was, was the pioneer. Well, and let's review those three steps. Okay. Well, number one is, is what a lot of your, you know, viewers and listeners probably already do, uh, is record your dreams. And that means all of your dreams. Uh, and it means in as much detail as you can muster, uh, you know, given the time and, and so on. I mean, we're all, we're all busy people and, and we have competing demands, but, it, but, but really have a dream journal and record every single dream you can remember, however fragmentary, however, you know, whether it's just a few images or, or if you can get all of the details, um, record those. Now I'll jump to the third step because it's the same as, as, as JW Dunn's second step, which is, and this is the, this is the ticket. This is the most important thing. Uh, and that's what distinguishes what we all, all of us dream workers and dreamers do, uh, from 
actually doing precognitive dream work, which is at the end of the day, you know, set aside your dream records, but then at the end of the day, before you go to bed, say, go back to your dream from that morning and the dreams you had the previous few days, a couple days. I mean, no one has time to check their whole dream record, but uh, the, the point is, look at those dreams and reflect, just kind of reflect, okay, what, you know, hmm, you know, are there any, any things that stand out as being uh, weirdly connected to, to what happened in your life in that interim? Uh, now, I add a second step that Dunn didn't add, um, and that is free associating. And by free associating, I don't mean anything esoteric or difficult. I simply mean when you write down the dream, when you first write down the dream, just think about, think about everything you're writing down and just think, what's the first thing this reminds me of? What's the first thing this character in my dream, you know, you know, some random person maybe from TV or from, you know, your past, you know, what's the first thing, what's the first thing that comes to mind? And often, often there'll be some, some weird thing that comes to mind immediately. That's, you know, it may be very personal, kind of embarrassing, you know, keep your dream record, you know, private, <laughs> uh, you know, but be honest and write down just those associations, those things that just naturally come to you when you're writing the dream down. Don't have any expectation that you're going to understand your dream because, you know, if, if the dream is precognitive and if I'm right that all dreams may be precognitive or at least contain precognitive content. The meaning is not going to come to you, you know, from that exercise. This is not like Freudian dream interpretation where you're trying to, you know, or, or Jungian where you're trying to get the archetypes or whatever. You know, just, just write down those associations because more often than not, when you detect, when you detect a connection to your lived experience over the next few days, likely, it's going to be to those associations in the dream. And it's, and there are very interesting reasons why the dream works in an associative manner. And this was one of the things that Freud, we can talk about Freud a, a bit. I mean, Freud, he got a lot of things wrong, but one of the things he got right was that, was that dreams speak a, a language of association. And, uh, and that's what, and Dunn actually was writing, you know, in the shadow of Freud. And in fact, he didn't, you know, he, he didn't, dispute anything that that Freud said he just thought that well the dream dreaming brain reaches into its future as much as into its past to construct to construct a dream but he was simply he was still looking for obvious you know obvious connections between a, a dream and something that happened the next day and if it if the a lot of associative kinds of things he would totally have missed doing that um, uh, so this this second step will you know you'll you'll net so many more examples of precognition in your in your dream life when you do that. So those are the three steps and they're really, you know, they're super easy. All you need is a is a is a notebook by your bed, you know, and a you know a little I keep a little headlamp, you know, there to you know uh for illumination and you know and a bottle of melatonin, you know, never hurts. <laughs> so uh but that's all you need. Well, it would be so nice if precognition simply worked, especially dream precognition, simply worked with a an accurate, direct description of a particular precognitive target without any need for symbolism or free association, but actually 
uh, it's important to understand we're dealing with the human psyche. And so your exploration of depth psychology, both Freudian and Jungian, combined with the parapsychological knowledge concerning precognition is a very powerful tool, the way you express it. I think that, that people need to pay it, pay close attention to, to psychoanalysis. The whole psychoanalytic tradition, uh, meaning not only Freud, but his students and Jung, who had been a student and then, you know, went off in his own direction. But uh, there is so much value in, in that way of thinking for a lot of reasons. Um, basically, you know, one of the things about precognition uh, is that and psychic phenomena in general. I mean, they straddle, you know, you need science, we need science to try and get to the bottom of them, but you're not going to get anywhere just with science, I believe. You need methods of the humanities as well. You need uh, the kind of interpretive uh, practices that, that Freud was so brilliant at doing. I mean, he was bridging early neuroscience with, you know, these methods from literary criticism and philosophy and so on. And he was doing it in a very reasoned fashion. Uh, and that mix of, of approaches is, is what it takes, I think, to understand these phenomena. I, I imagine you probably agree with me um, that, that, you know, these are meaningful phenomena. I mean, science is not good at getting at meaning. Uh, it's good at getting at causes. And, you need, and we need that, but we need the meaning as well. And that's why I think it's important to to go back to Freud and go back to his tradition. Uh, but also Freud's, you know, a lot of things from Freud we can kind of okay set set aside. I mean, he was he was, you know, I think he was a lot of even a lot of psychoanalysts would agree today that he was overemphasizing the the sexuality stuff and uh, and whatnot. But his what we call his metapsychology, that is to say the sort of map of the mind with, you know, and sometimes you picture an iceberg with the conscious up here, ego, and then you have the preconscious and the unconscious, that sort of thing. That model and that, that's his sort of, uh, dynamic model of how conscious and unconscious interact is super important. And it's, and it holds its, its validity. Honestly, you know, so much neuroscience uh, from the past couple of decades has essentially been showing that Freud was right. They'll use different terms, <laughs> you know, they'll, they'll, they'll import a whole new vocabulary. So you don't detect that this is, oh, this is kind of proving what Freud said. Um, uh, but, but, you know, he was, he was right about the metapsychology part. And I think that his metapsychology, that kind of map of the unconscious and so on is essentially a ready-made theory of precognition. Because I think, I think, you know, Freud was thinking that, that the unconscious is just a soup of our childhood and, and our past. I think that there's a lot of evidence that, that actually it's a soup of our future. And, uh, and the future is speaking to us symbolically. And, uh, and so that's, I mean, I wrote, you know, a lot of my first book was sort of on this theme and I sort of hit it again, obviously in the new book uh, in a more simple, simplified fashion. But I think, yeah, I think Freud really provided a, a kind of roadmap. So in the, so the new book was almost as like, it's like combining, you know, you, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Dunn and Freud. And then there's kind of a, a little bit of Einstein <laughs> thrown in there. 
Well, one of the points you made in the three steps of this experimental process that any viewer can try is, is to really just look a, a few days ahead to see uh, if your dreams are valid. But you do provide striking examples that are sometimes, if I recall correctly, years away from the actual dream, decades even. So, it's as if not only do we have precognitive information coming from the near future, we also have it from the distant future, and it's all happening at once. Yeah, and that's what's so incredibly mind-blowing. I mean, it's, 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 it's mind-blowing enough to realize uh, that you've had a precognitive dream about an event that happens the next morning. You know, that, that in and of itself is, you know, wow, that just like totally blows up all of our assumptions about causality and, you know, time and consciousness and all that stuff. That, you know, it's mind-blowing. Um, and you need to build up a few of those experiences before they become convincing because we have this knee-jerk readiness to just, you know, all this this can't be real or I'm misremembering or whatever. Um, it, there's so many doubts that creep in and that's true for any, almost any kind of paranormal experience. It's weird that there's this, this, this mental kind of defense mechanism against, against these kinds of things. But the more you have these experiences and the more you can, you know, you can point to them in your, in your notebook. It's not just, you know, I'm kind of have a vague memory of a dream that seemed to be like something else, but you have a you have a record of it. Um, it is, it is truly a, it's a paradigm altering thing, but then add to it the experience of having, uh, of, of discovering that, you know, a significant dream you had two decades ago, that you're living through it right now and add to it, which often happens, you go back to your dream journal from two decades ago. Oh, and it happened on this date two decades ago. That is a reality. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's just, you know, it's mind blowing. Uh, and it, it gives you a whole new sense of your, of the brain, the mind and the self. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's powerful. One of the comments that you made in passing, as I recall, in your book is that uh, this sort of thing seems to follow a pattern uh, that could be described using the fractal mathematics of Mandelbrot. I use the word fractal in a kind of loosey-goosey sense to mean self-similarity, you know, the idea of things being recursive. Um, uh, and, you know, the the you know, a dream is often this kind of, you know, uh, kind of an expression kind of in miniature of a larger life situation that includes often your own going back to the dream, to the dream journal. Like, so one of the, you know, one of the really f fascinating features of the dream world is what I call time gimmicks. Uh, sometimes you'll detect, you know, you'll record in your dream some element there's some element of the dream that like relates to time travel or there has an, an anachronism of some kind. And I've learned that those elements often, I can't tell what the dream's going to be about really, or what event, you know, this precognized, but I, I can sometimes tell that, okay, I'm definitely going to know that this dream was precognitive as the event is occurring because what those elements 
seem to be are symbolic representations of going back to your dream journal to check, to check, to verify that you had a dream about this. So there's this, <laughs> it's like, it's, it's, it's just, you know, uh, it's, it's mind blowing to have, have these experiences where you're, you know, where your dreaming mind, you know, what, you know, a, a, a year ago or, or last night, you know, knew that you were not only going to have this experience, but you were going to go to your dream journal right after it happened and check and verify that you had that experience. And so puts in a symbol in the dream of you looking back at your dream journal. I mean, it's just. Well, you, you made this motion and it reminded me of your first book, Time Loops. And this is really a classic example of a time loop when you precognize yourself realizing that it was a precognition. Yeah, absolutely. But honestly, all it's all time loops. I mean, even if we don't, you know, do something as obvious as going back to our dream journal, the, 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 the logic of precognition is always going to be a loop because you are always your, your dream, you know, writing it down, whatever your dream got you to do. I mean, even if it's just to hold a memory in your head or, or take five minutes to write it down, whatever it did, it, that's an effect in your life. I mean, that's, you know, the, that, that has a butterfly effect kind of influence on your subsequent life, right? And those actions in your life led you to that moment where you had that experience that you dreamed about. So there's always that looping, um, that looping aspect of it. Um, and this is the, this is the part that throws people. This is part that like, uh, and I think it's why there's kind of been it's almost acted as a force field, I think, for many decades against people kind of squarely confronting precognition. And I'll say that it was a force field on Carl Jung, uh, because honestly, my favorite example of a time loop is his famous scare, the famous scarab dream. Okay, uh, in his in his office, and this I, I believe this happened probably in about 1920. I, I read about it a lot in my first book, but I returned to it in the in the new book because it's such a fascinating story. But he had this patient who was uh, who was very inaccessible, very hyper rational, and so on. Uh, and she's in his office, and you know he's you know feeling kind of bored and doesn't know what to do with this woman, and uh, she she tells him the dream that she'd had the night before about someone giving her this piece of golden jewelry in the shape of a scarab beetle. Okay. And you, you know, I'm sure that, that 99% of your listeners probably know the story already because you know, it's, it's the story is everywhere in, in, in new age writing and parapsychology, whatever. It's a classic. It's probably the most famous thing uh, Carl Jung ever wrote. And that's from his book synchronicity. Um, but Anyway, and so, well, just then as he's hearing this patient tell him this story, he hears a tapping on the window behind him, and he turns around, uh, and there's this this little beetle, you know, on the glass, and it's a, a European relative of the, of the dung beetle uh, called a rose chafer. And, uh, and so he, he opens the window, lets in, you know, holds the, the, the beetle and hands it to his patient and says, here's your scarab, you know? Well, this, uh, you know, people, you know, he, he saw this as a synchronicity and that is to say he was focusing on that moment in the, in the consulting room. And he thought it was coincidental that this patient was telling him this dream. And then this, the, the insect shows up, but in fact, what he's, what he was sort of, 
ignoring was that, no, it was a precognitive dream on the part of his patient. <laughs> his patient uh, had this dream and that, and that dream led her in that situation to divulge, to tell him her dream. And only because she was telling him her dream, this coincidental appearance, you know, appearance of the insect, like it became a time loop because, you know, her telling him the dream is what got him to give her the insect. And, and what's even more uh, interesting is that her dreaming mind symbolized the incredible value of that moment to her. I mean, he, he says in the, in the story that, you know, this, this, you know, this coincidence, you know, it, it opened her up and, and it, and lay, you know, it was, in, it was like a rebirth, you know, and he, he sort of looked to the symbolism of the scarab and so on as a rebirth symbol. But, uh, in, in her dream, you know, she's not literalistically receiving an insect from her therapist. Um, she's receiving a piece of gold jewelry. Okay. Something incredibly valuable is what, what it said in the, in the, in the description. Um, so, you know, she's, her dreaming mind is already, already knows not only that someone's going to hand her this insect, but that it's going to be incredibly valuable. You know, she's going to like, holy, you know, this is going to be a really valuable moment in her life. Um, so yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's, that's the loopy and, uh, and symbolic way that dreams work. And I, I do think that symbolism in dreams is a direct effect of the, of the time loop aspect. Well, another point coming out of this experience is that synchronicities or precognitions, uh, whatever you want to call them, and theorists sometimes think that synchronicity is the basis of all precognition, and other theorists think precognition is the basis of all psychic phenomena. But in any case, when it happens to you, it very often leads to an epiphany, an epiphany being that the uh, external world and the materialistic culture in which we're embedded uh, doesn't provide all the answers. The same can be true of paranormal phenomena in general. And this is an argument that our, you know, mutual friend Jeff Kripal has been making lately, you know, that, that, that that's what the paranormal is. It's a, it's a way of busting us out of, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, and the point is not to land on some certainty or some, you know, the, the whole point is to finally realize oh, there's, we're not going to get any certainty here. Well, going back to J.W. Dunn, uh, he was, uh, even though he's been largely forgotten in today's world, he was quite influential in his own day. You report on a number of uh, prominent figures who were uh, very much influenced by him back in the 1920s and 1930s. Yeah, he was incredibly influential on writers of the middle of the century. Uh, some of, you know, very famous writers who you'd be surprised uh, were reading J.W. Dunn and being influenced by him. Uh, the number one example that I don't think people realize is uh, J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, Dunn's book was, was a, a topic of discussion in the Inklings group that Tolkien was part of, along with C.S. Lewis, okay? And they discussed this book um, and C.S. Lewis actually wrote it into uh, one of his novels. Um, uh, I forget the name of the novel, but it was published after his death. But there's a scene in it where essentially 
versions of the Inklings are debating this topic of precognition. And, you know, J.W. Dunn, and one of the characters says, J.W. Dunn has proven this. This is, you know, if you just do the experiment yourself, you will find that it's true, which to me is an indication that C.S. Lewis did his experiment, at least to his own satisfaction. Um, and and Dunn's book, now we don't unfortunately um, have, have any evidence of Tolkien's uh, dream journals or dream experiments, if there were any, but he was incredibly influenced by Dunn, and it became Dunn's book became kind of one of the biggest influences actually on the Elven races in his in his stories and his novels. And there are all these notes that his son sort of compiled afterwards uh, about like Elvish time and the Elves' relationship to eternity and time. And it's all based on Dunn. And there's like, uh, you know, li- handwritten notes about Dunn and Dunn's, Dunn's book in the margins. So, you know, uh, people who, you know, read Tolkien should realize that the, one of the biggest influences <laughs> on what, what, what Tolkien was writing uh, in The Lord of the Rings was a this precognitive dreamer um, who wrote this incredible book. But there's other other amazing, you know, like Vladimir Nabokov uh, did. He consciously replicated the experiment uh, and got great results doing it. There's some I have some of these in my book. Um, uh, yeah, then and there were a, a number of other writers. I mean, he was quite quite influential at the time. But yeah, he's unfortunately kind of. Um, fallen off the the map. I, I actually know someone who's just completed a, a, a massive biography of him and is looking for a publisher right now. So hopefully hopefully that'll change. But yeah, he was uh, he was super, super interesting. Let me ask you this. Now that you've been working with this method for some time and you, you, you've written this book providing detailed instructions as as I recall 27 unique principles that people can follow when uh, pursuing this path of uh, reaching out into the future or at least appreciating how the future is reaching out to you how does it benefit you personally yeah that's a great question and it's surprising you know I my own path, uh, towards this, I, I think is going to be like a lot of people's where, you know, initially you hear about ESP and you hear about it enough that you're, you think, oh, there may be something to this. Uh, and, you know, you're thinking of it as a superpower, right? I mean, I think we all, you know, like in my early experiments with remote viewing, you know, it's like you kind of have this fantasy that you're going to develop this, this, this super ability that's going to help you, uh, you know, and impress people and, and, and so on, you know, you want a superpower. Well, that, that in the end is not, at least with precognition, that's not completely what it is. And uh, there's, I'll put it, put an asterisk by that because there is a way in which it is. But, um, the, the biggest benefit is just this kind of enhancement of your understanding of yourself. You know, and, and this understanding that we talked about at the beginning where, uh, well, for, you know, we, I think we just habitually in our culture, we go through life thinking, well, all there is really is the present moment. You know, the past is dead and gone. You know, it may it may exert a, a, a force on us, but, you know, it's 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 irrelevant, really. And the future is completely unknowable and it doesn't exist. You know, it's, it's some, you know, cloud of possibilities and it doesn't affect us. Well, what precognitive dream work 
shows is, oh, neither of those premises are true, that we are constantly interacting. Our, our self is a long self, and we are constantly interacting with ourself at other ages in a symbolic and indirect way. So we don't, it's not an obvious thing, but uh, our thoughts, you know, the, the, the point is that you have a, if you have a dream about um, uh, an event that happened, you know, a year ago, you know, say on this date, you know, uh, you know, you suddenly realize, oh my gosh, I dreamed this a year ago and you go back to your notebook and whatnot. It's true. Um, well, that's mind blowing, you know, cause it means that, you know, my future, you know, me in a year, some experience I'm having a year from now, it might show up in my dreams tonight, you know, and I'm not going to know exactly what that is. You know, that's what, you know, you realize precognition is not going to be this thing where you're seeing this video image of something that's going to happen and you can affect it or whatever. Um, it's not quite like that, but, uh, it's, it, who cares? It's mind blowing to have this, this experience, but then extrapolate from that. Well, if that means, okay, it, it, if, if I can precognize events in my future, then that means the thoughts that I'm having right now influenced my past to some extent, you know, and if I'm, if I have like a really profound experience or powerful experience or a major upheaval in my life, this affected me, you know, potentially, you know, and the thing is I have examples in the book, uh, not only from me, but from, from other, uh, people I work with, you know, of dreams transcending, you know, three decades of their life, uh, in a powerful way. Um, uh, and, uh, that means that my past is a product partly of who I am now. And so that's a mind blowing thought. So you have these, <laughs> these kind of mind blowing epiphanies about, about, like I said, time, you know, consciousness, whatever that is in the self. Uh, and it's, it's just this radically transformed view of who you are. And it makes you appreciate yourself a lot better and forgive yourself. It comes back to the uh, initial theme we started out with, the long self. To, to have this larger sense of who we are may be the ultimate benefit and the best possible benefit. Right. And it not only gives you more compassion for yourself and self-care. Care is an important word in this, I think. Um, but you, uh, it, it gives you more compassion for other people too. You realize that we are all long selves and that we're, you know, that life, the world is a, is a, you know, it's like a tapestry that's woven from these long selves and you start to, you know, it, it enhances, you know, ha enhances your compassion for and care for, for others that are on this life's journey. You know, they're long selves too. And, uh, we're all long selves. You just don't know it. And I, yeah, it, that, and that's, I think the, the biggest, you know, it's very inspiring, um, to think that way. But I, you know, the, the going back to that idea of the superpower, you know, it's not, it's not going to be a superpower the way you think it is when you embark on this path, but it also, uh, it enhances your, your in, intuition. Uh, and some people are very intuitive naturally. Uh, and I think that intuition is just precognition by another name. And, uh, but when you go on this path, even if you aren't that intuitive or you're not used to being intuitive, you start to listen to your intuition more and you start to, um, you start to, I think, employ a kind of a natural superpower that we all have latent in us, 
Um, and it, and I think it, it will start, I'm, I have faith that it will start to show benefits in your life. <laughs> I can't prove that, but I, 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 I quite believe that it's true. Well, I'm totally with you on this, Eric. I uh, subscribe actually to everything you've said so far. But if I were to put on my skeptical hat, I might say something like, uh, well, if, if the dream can be verified at any point ranging from days to decades, and the dream doesn't even have to be literally a, a prediction, it can be symbolic, it can have to do with uh, uh, associations, how are you going to make that, uh, as C.S. Lewis seemed to imply, scientifically provable? How do you apply statistics to something as amorphous as that? You might not. And that's and this is the thing, honestly, that interests me about the topic. And I, I, I understand. I totally get that 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 skepticism. And I'd, and the thing is, that skepticism has always been there with psychoanalytic approaches because they have the same problem. Uh, leaving aside the whole precognitive idea, anytime you are trying to assert a connection between dream content and an event in waking life, and it, there's any kind of symbolism going on, well, you always have the skeptics saying, well, you're, you're the one doing the interpreting, and you're saying that this means that, and it's all based on your experience. Well, the trouble is that's the way the brain works. <laughs> it works on our own experience. And so we're always going to have this, this problem that, that a, uh, a, a, you know, the, the one's own idiosyncratic dream language, just leaving aside the whole issue of whether it's precognitive or not. I mean, you're always going to have the inability to convince someone who's only going to listen to uh, a, a statistically significant result from a laboratory experiment. Because, I mean, if you got, you know, imagine sleep research has always faced this difficulty. And this is why dream, you know, the scientific study of dreams has always lagged behind other topics in psychology. I mean, you know, and every two months, there's some new article saying, oh, here's how, here's why we dream, you know, and it's all, it's, and it's never convincing. And it's, you know, it's, it's just one researcher's, you know, little study. And it's like, it means nothing. Um, the, it's very hard to study dreams because of that meaning component. Okay. This is why, you know, anything that's, that's highly meaningful to people, it's always going to slip through science's nets. And so, you know, this is why I, I, and I make this argument in my, my first book, and I kind of wish I'd made it again in the, in the most recent book to address this exact skepticism is that you need reason, you know, and, and reason is this thing that we've kind of lost sight of. I mean, it's like, oh, well, old fashioned, old timey philosophers talked about reason, but, but no, we need, you know, this idea of reason as like, what's a reasonable compromise between what science is able to show and what other methods are able to show and this kind of reasonable ability to put them together in a, a way that's never going to be perfect and it's never going to be 100 percent like you know you cannot 100 percent prove that any dream you have is precognitive of a, of a later event and you can you know maybe 100 percent prove it to yourself because you were there and you know but you know no one else is going to be able to to make that connection with the same level of conviction uh that you are so there's always going to be this 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 nebulous uncertainty you know and i and that i i I'm, I'm a lover of uncertainty i'm very happy in the world of uncertainty and i know a lot of people you know feel the opposite but i you know if you're if you're comfortable with uncertainty then it's a, this is a great 
<laughs> topic. But incidentally, the same exact problem faces physicists who are trying to study retrocausation, which is the physical principle that essentially allows something like precognition to exist. That is to say, causes that that travel backwards in time against our usual you know, understanding of the arrow of time. And this is an increasingly uh, big topic, actually, in, uh, for quantum physicists. There's a, a growing kind of community of quantum physicists who think that retrocausation is actually the answer to a lot of the old quantum conundrums of the measurement problem and so on. Uh, but proving this experimentally is extremely difficult because, and for this exactly the same reasons, because you, you know, how do you distinguish, uh, you know, a, a proposed cause happening in reverse from in a, an effect of your measurement effectively. Um, but new methods are sort of increasing the ability to maybe do that, but never with 100% certainty. Again, it's like there's always this, <laughs> this margin of doubt uh, in these findings, but it's, um, it, yeah, it's what makes the, the topic fascinating. And yes, I'm your, your criticism, yeah, that's always, that's always going to be there. But it doesn't, that's not just with precognition. Well, it's very interesting. Um, my dissertation advisor back when I was a graduate student was a philosopher, Michael Scriven. As I recall, he wrote a book called Reasoning. That, that was his emphasis. And he delivered the uh, keynote address to the Parapsychological Association. I think it was 1961, 1962. And uh, his theme was, was this, that parapsychology is a science with a lot of data looking for a theory. And Psychoanalysis is a science with a theory looking for data. That's great. I, I, I'm going to find. I'm going to track down that because that, that's that's you know that's that's the perfect uh, setup for what I'm arguing. That hey hey psychoanalysis meet parapsychology. That's yeah. Uh, yeah. And of course, Freud himself at one time, I know he said if he could do it all over again, he would go into parapsychology. But at the same time, he was a bit frightened by it. Yeah, he was. People kind of characterize him as a, as a skeptic, but he wasn't. I mean, he was, he was very, uh, very interested in telepathy and numerology. I mean, he had a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of experiences in his in his in his um, in his uh, consulting room that were paranormal. Essentially, uh, he didn't believe in precognition, however, which I, I think is a, a very interesting detail in his life. And I, uh, as you know, I, I, spy, I have, there's a lot of real estate in both of my books taken up with you know the, the ironies around Freud's doubt about precognition because I think it it was central to to his kind of complexes and and so on. You can kind of psychoanalyze his doubts about precognition. But, um, but yeah, he was, uh, he was very interested in telepathy and late, late in his career, he, he wrote, he felt freer to write about it. I mean, under, it's understandable, you know, it's, he's, he's trying to kind of start a new, what he saw as a new science, you know, and, you know, he didn't, he didn't want to alienate, you know, he was already facing, you know, so many doubters and, and skeptics that he didn't want to, you know, alienate a whole nother group of people. So it's, it's understandable. I mean, it's kind of professional, you know, he's managing his his professional, you know, reputation and stuff. He, you, you spent some time in your book talking about how 
precognition and backwards causality as well would be an example of teleology and teleology is forbidden in in science i had never thought of it that way i thought of teleology meaning purpose uh, intention well that's why it's forbidden in science see this is you know i think this is a very interesting part of the story about why why people are so skeptical about about this topic, um, back in the back at the beginnings of the Enlightenment, what we call this, you know, the Enlightenment, you know, Isaac Newton and those guys, um, they, you know, the the number one rule is you had to leave God out of the equation. Okay, you had to leave God out of the scientific equation. It's not fair bringing some divine force. You know, the the whole point is you have to explain the natural world completely naturalistically. At that point, they couldn't imagine a teleology. They couldn't imagine a sort of backwards causation that wasn't part of God's purpose. Okay. That wasn't, you know, an aspect of God's purpose. They, they, they couldn't imagine that, that, you know, that just automatically meant the divine to them. And so, and so, yeah, that was, that became forbidden. And scientists to this day have this, you know, powerful, powerful, you know, knee-jerk reaction, unless, unless they're physicists who are like, kind of open-minded to this, actually, uh, they're, you know, there's a very powerful kind of knee-jerk, you know, defense, not knee-jerk. I mean, it's, it was trained into them. It's trained into scientists that you don't bring in miracles. And, uh, and it's hard, you have to, uh, part of the, what I'm trying to do in my book is, is to convince readers who may be on the fence about this, that this is not a miracle. I'm not talking about the supernatural, you know, I'm not talking about, um, you know, something that is outside the bounds of, of physics and biology and, and so on. I think that physics, I think that, that physics and biology are going to accommodate this in the future. There's going to be a very expanded understanding of what we mean by, uh, by science and materialism, even, you know, I sort of, I sort of am this kind of lone banner holder of, of materialism <laughs> in this, you know, world of parapsychology where everyone's so anti-materialistic right now. Well, I think, you know, you know re re reimagine materialism. You can reimagine materialism in really interesting ways. And that's, and, and I think this is, this is one of them. Um, but yeah, that's sort of the background. I think that's the backstory for, for why scientists often are just so knee-jerk, like opposed to, uh, to anything like precognition. Um, you know, a lot of scientists are open to other paranormal phenomena that don't automatically imply causes going in reverse, but, but there's this just powerful stigma or, or something against, um, you know, retrocausal explanations. Well, if I go back to my graduate school days, uh, my professor Michael Scriven used to say that uh, the materialistic metaphysics—it's—it's it's like imperialism. It will modify itself to to take into account new data. So if we have to transform what we mean by space and time in order to fit it into a materialistic framework, we'll do that. But one other point I'd like to make—I had another professor on my doctoral committee in parapsychology, C. West Churchman, who was a professor of management science and a specialist in systems theory. And he used to point out to me that in his field of management science, teleology is not a problem. Of course, when you're uh, operating a business, you set goals, you plan, you have strategic objectives, and, and you work towards them. And that's part of uh, what management science is about. 
about. So teleology has already found its way into some areas of science. And, and then kind of on the margins of science, you also have people in biology who, you know, who are, you know, maybe intelligent design proponents or, you know, you know, or, or more neutrally, the anthropic, you know, universe proponents. Well, you know, honestly, I think that that these people have a point and it's not, you know, maybe intelligence is not what they're imagining, but the idea that that the universe does, you know, biological systems do possess an intelligence in the sense that that they're being informed by uh, by what's ahead. I think this is going to I think this is going to prove true. I mean, I think that that uh, I think the time loops are are going to be a principle uh, of biology, very simple biology. True. This is not a matter of the human brain being some uh, super organ. I mean, I think that, that this happens on a cellular level and it's going to, uh, we just don't know how yet, but, um, but there are, there are hints uh, already in, in, in research that are pointing towards, uh, you know, I think uh, some really cool possible answers to how this may, may operate. Yeah. Well, it does seem to me, Eric, that the universe as a whole does have a purpose. After all, uh, it could be that nothing existed. You sometimes have to ask yourself, why is there something instead of nothing? Physicist John Wheeler was really, I think he was, he was right. I, I'm, I'm, I, who am I to declare that he was right? I'm not a physicist or, or cosmologist, but I think that uh, that his model, I mean, sort of late in his life, he got really compelled by this idea. He was, you know, interested in the idea that, that you can affect the past, uh, through observation. He was, he was working with a much more limited, uh, sense of retrocausation than what I'm talking about, or, and that what a lot of physicists now are talking about. But just this very idea that the observer in a, in a, of a quantum experiment is affecting, uh, affecting the system they're observing, you know, well, theoretically, that's, that's a retrocausal influence because of the time it takes, you know, those photons to hit my eye and so on. Uh, and then he designed experiments where you could test this over astronomical distances, you know, and seemingly show that the observer on Earth is affecting, uh, somehow affecting a photon that traveled, you know, a few hundred billion light years to my eye, you know, so that's an effect on the past. So he, based on that model, he, uh, he was compelled by, he, he would draw this big U to stand for the universe. And one of the tips of the U was the Big Bang, okay? And the other tip was this observer, this eyeball pointing back at the Big Bang. And he was he was arguing that that intelligence in the universe, you know, uh, human beings and, and our descendants and our descendants' descendants, you know, far in the future at the end of time, uh, created, potentially created or influenced the Big Bang initially. And perhaps that is an explanation then for the, what, uh, what is called the anthropic universe, the idea that that the laws of the universe are so finely tuned um, that it can't be coincidental that somehow we arose in this universe as observers of it. And this this model, this retrocausal um, cosmological model uh, is, you know, very compelling. And then when you add to it um, uh, kind of a more enhanced uh, understanding of retrocausation on the small scale, but also uh, more macro manifestations of retrocausation, like time travel, um, you know, which I, is going to be a reality. And 
you know, when you have civilizations reaching into the past, you know, in physical, you know, technological ways, uh, then you have all kinds of mechanisms for time loops to be a part of, of our physical universe, to be sort of constitutive of our universe. Wheeler came up with uh, so many uh, far out ideas. The irony is that towards the end of his life, he was very hostile to parapsychology. I think he felt threatened by it in a way. He published an editorial uh, called Let's Drive the Pseudos Out of the Workshop of Science. And he ended up having to apologize to uh, J.B. Rhine, uh, one of the founders of modern parapsychology, for some of the accusations that were unfounded that he made in that editorial. I'm aware of that story. And yeah, it's, it's interesting. I, you know, I, I, I find it very interesting that, that, uh, unfortunately, some of the physicists who are, I think, you know, have been doing the work that really kind of paves the way for, for, for parapsychology to have a theory, you know, the, the long awaited theory. I think, unfortunately, they're very, you know, just like Freud, they're, you know, they're, they're like really afraid of their work that's already kind of on the edge, uh, getting, you know, getting that taint of, of, of being associated with, um, uh, us, <laughs> us, uh, <laughs> lowly, <laughs> kooky <laughs> parapsychologists. So, yeah, I think, I think that's probably what was going on there. You, you did write about this powerful stigma and how it's affecting society and, and particularly affecting people who are having experiences themselves who, and, and the tendency to, to try and deny your own experience. Yes, it's, in, it's internalized stigma. We're hearing a lot about stigma nowadays in, in, in you know, in a lot of range of, of, of fields and science and, and the humanities and, and which is awesome. But yeah, there's a huge stigma problem, obviously in, uh, when it comes to uh, paranormal experience in general and um, people who, who have remarkable experiences, uh, that don't fit, well, they're remarkable because they don't fit into, uh, our, our main star, our collective understanding of how things work. Um, are, are stigmatized. They face ridicule. They face sort of, usually not ridicule. It's just kind of this kind of like subtle eye roll. Like, you know, I can, I can see it in a person if, if they ask, Oh, well, what's your book about? You know, and then, and then you kind of like, you know, give a little summary and then you can see this kind of slight pulling back and it's not an, it's not a visible eye roll, but it's like, it's a, you know, it's, it's, it exerts a chilling effect. You know, it's like, well, this is, you know, this is someone who I cannot talk to about, about, you know, an important part of my life. And at least I've got a life outside of this that I can, you know, that can validate me. But, you know, when you've had a powerful experience that, that may be traumatic, you know, and, uh, for some people, some people have precognitive dream experiences that are traumatic. Um, they will, you know, have a dream about a loved one's death, for instance, and then it happens. Uh, and then they're faced with this guilt, you know, that, oh, I should have done something or I could have done something or maybe I caused it, you know, because, because they, you know, people don't, you know, separate their own, uh, you know, that they don't know how these things work. So maybe I caused it, you know, maybe I somehow caused it. Um, uh, I've heard so many stories of, of people who've, who've had, uh, you know, and I hasten to say that, that premonitions of death and disaster are in the teeny minority 
of precognitive dreams. And, uh, and yet that, those are the things that kind of scare people, um, about the whole topic, you know? Uh, and, and, you know, I have talked to a lot of people at this point, um, after my book came out, you know, I, I started, I was inundated with, with emails and talking to people at, at lectures and stuff, uh, people sharing, you know, occasionally heartbreaking stories and the heart and the, and the, the heartbreak is in that they feel such trauma and, and such guilt around these things that in fact, uh, there, there is no way you can be guilty of, uh, of this. If you understand how a precognitive dream actually works and this time looping aspect, it's not your fault that you didn't act on that dream or that you didn't understand that that was a, a premonition or whatever. Uh, you know, that was going to happen. That thing was going to happen, you know, redream or not. And for whatever reason you, uh, you know, you had a dream that, you know, beforehand that, you know, you know, the biologically, we can su suppose that the system kind of helps prepare us, you know, and I think if we're less, if we, we had a better understanding of how it worked, we would be able to accept that. Um, but um, it's, yeah, it produces all these, these misunderstandings that are, that are traumatizing to people. You wrote, for example, a famous instance of this uh, involving the great writer Mark Twain. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the, honestly, one of the best, clearest examples of how all this works. Um, and, and this guilt aspect. I mean, yeah, he was, before he was Mark Twain, he was Samuel Clemens. He was a pilot in training on a, on a riverboat, uh, on the Mississippi called the Pennsylvania. And he got a job. He, he got a job for his younger brother on the same riverboat, his younger brother, Henry. Uh, I think it was about, 18 at the time. Anyway, uh, well, they were, they were sort of between runs on the boat. They were staying with their sister, their older sister in St. Louis. And, uh, Mark Twain, or sorry, Samuel Clemens had this very vivid dream of seeing his brother Henry in a, in a steel coffin, in a metal coffin, wearing one of his suits, one of, one of Mark Twain's suits. Um, and, uh, and then a woman came in and laid a, a bouquet on his chest and had you know, white roses and one red rose. Okay. Well, anyway, uh, he told this to his family. So there's independent attestation of this dream from his family. Anyway, a few days later, they shipped out on the Pennsylvania. They went down to St. Uh, to New Orleans and, uh, Samuel Clemens was sort of a, um, difficult personality in some ways. And, and so was the pilot, uh, so was the pilot on this boat. And like, they got into a fight and the pilot made him stay ashore for their run back North. Um, so the boat went back North and a couple days later, Twain got word that, uh, there had been a huge boiler explosion and killed a lot of, of the people on the boat. And so he hurried, he took the next available boat up to, um, Memphis, uh, which is where this occurred. Uh, and his, uh, he, st he was able to stay the night with his brother as he was dying, essentially, um, of burns. And anyway, the next morning he, he went into the room where all the dead, uh, there was a big room and they were all in, they were all in pine boxes except for one metal box. And it was his brother and the nurses had pitched in uh, because they'd been so impressed with his stoicism, with his burns and stuff. They pitched in to buy him a metal box. Um, and, uh, just as he's there, like beholding this incredible scene that he'd seen in his dream, you know, a nurse comes in and lays the, the bouquet of roses on his chest and so on. 
Um, and he felt, you know, obviously he felt, you know, incredible guilt about this the rest of his life. I mean, and the fact that, oh, and, and he was, Henry was, uh, had borrowed one of his suits and he didn't even know about it. And there he's, he's laying in the coffin in his own suit. So it kind of amplifies this sense of, Oh, it could have been me. It should have been me. I should have been on that boat too. You know, and it's my fault because I got him the job on that boat. You know, all these mixed emotions about, about, um, about death and loss and, and so on. Um, so yeah, that's a powerful, very powerful example. Well, one of the principles that you articulate, if I recall correctly, is that these very emotional experiences are, I, I would call them magnets for precognition. Again, I hasten to say that premonitions of big events like disasters and deaths and so on are really, really the exception. And I mean, most precognitive dreams are about the upheavals in our daily life. And guess what? All of us thank God, live really boring lives. And, you know, the biggest upheaval in your life might be a sink backing up or your, you know, be, you know, the, some random thing in your family or some, you know, some, you know, email that you wish you hadn't sent and then feeling bad about it or, you know, just, just those kinds of things, those kinds of, you know, little em emotional upheavals in, in your, in your life. And those are the kinds of things that your dreams from the previous couple nights are going to have focused on. I tend to think, you know, I, it's an easy assumption to make, and I think it's probably true, but I can't prove it, that it's the bigger, the bigger events in our life, the bigger life-changing events that we're liable to precognize, you know, years, decades earlier, you know, it doesn't make sense that we would, you know, have a dream about the sink backing up, you know, like 30 years before, you know, the dreams I've had that I've detected, you know, uh, over decades are, you know, big, you know, pretty big kind of milestones and turning points. Um, but I can't prove that, but it certainly makes sense. Uh, uh, there's a, you know, the inverse square law in, in physics that sort of, you know, the, you know, the, the intensity of, of energy, you know, sort of dissipates over, over, you know, distance. And I think there's something like that happening with precognitive dreams, but imperfectly. Well, Eric Wargo, what a delightful conversation. I've learned a lot. I trust our viewers have learned a lot. I uh, look forward to many more such conversations with you in the future. Thank you for being with me. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been fun. And for those of you watching or listening, thank you for being with us. Thank you.